This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. Welcome to episode 70. Doesn't that have a... I just like the sound of episode 70. Anyway, this week, my guest is Joe Fassler, who is a writer based in Brooklyn. He regularly interviews authors for the Atlantic's By Heart series, an amazing resource for everyone listening. He's a graduate of the University of Iowa MFA program, and his fiction has appeared in the Boston Review and Electric Literature. In 2011, his reporting for TheAtlantic.com was a finalist for a James Beard Foundation Award in Journalism. He's currently a senior editor at The New Food Economy. And we are talking to him today about his book out now called Light the Dark. And as always, I'm excited to have someone on who has a book out and can talk about the process of writing a book. But we have the added meta excitement that this is a book compiling all of the interviews he's done with authors. So we get both the benefit of Joe's thoughts on writing the book itself, his experience of attending Iowa for his MFA. Um, You know, I, I dare you not to have the fantasy of running off to Iowa to do an MFA after listening to this conversation. I certainly had that fantasy. And then also, um, insights that he's gained from the conversations he had with authors in order to create the book itself. So there are many, many layers to this interview, and I think all of them will be enjoyable to you. I know you're going to love Light the Dark, which is out now. Um, There are links to the book in the show notes available at secretlibrarypodcast.com. Enjoy listening to Joe. Hey, Joe, thanks for coming on. Hey, Caroline. So glad to be on the show. So I, from what I understand... You have been the interviewer, but are less often the interviewee. That's absolutely right. I love yeah. it. <laughs> it's fun, right? Writers are great to talk to. Yeah, exactly. Well, I yeah, I think we've both managed to create projects where you get to talk to them all the time, which is, by the way, like the best deal going, right? I mean, it's amazing. It's it, really so fun because I think it's one of those things about media these days, which is you know you can say to somebody like, hey can I talk to you about your writing, Stephen King or Neil Gaiman or any of these people? And just for my own purposes, and of course they would say no, but if you say, you know what, I'll record it in some fashion and share it, then you kind of have access. Yeah, I think that's part of my attraction to to journalism in general is you just get to sort of stalk all of these people who are fascinating to you or interesting in some way. And and, uh, it's totally professional and okay. You know, you get to call, I I mean, I'm, I write about food and I write about other things. So I'm constantly calling strangers on the phone, but you know, writers are tend to be some of the more interesting people to talk to since, you know, their medium is, is words after all, they're just dynamic conversationalists by and large. Exactly. So you, so your book, Light the Dark started out as a column for the Atlantic in 2013 called By Heart. And I love the premise which was not just talking about writing, but it's what have they read that changed their lives? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the best question ever. Did you, you got so excited because you, I loved that you admitted that the, the preface was a little tricky to write, which what preface isn't tricky to write, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. That was a first for me. And I really did a lot of go arounds on it. <laughs> yeah. How many drafts was it for the preface or like how I don't even remember. I think it? I, you know, I think I had maybe four different attempts before I settled on the approach that really worked, Um, which is something I find often like, you know, I have to just write something 
start to finish that just doesn't work. But in the process of writing it, I realize why it doesn't work. And then I can try again. So I think I did that three or four times with this before I settled on the eventual um, approach that I did take. I think that's so important. And I think it's something that people don't give themselves permission to do. It's like beginning writers. Mm -hmm. Whenever they think about writing, I hear this over and over again, having done tons of interviews as well. It's that the permission to just write a shitty draft and we've all read Anne Lamott and we all know it's okay. But for some reason there's this belief and I don't know where it comes from. Maybe you have some thoughts having interviewed so many people Yeah. that if you don't do it really well the first time, then you don't have any talent and there's no point in continuing. Totally. Yeah. I think it comes from, from two places. Um, generally, I mean, one is that the vast majority of people have very little experience with the process itself, the underlying process that goes into creating a work of art. You know, as, as consumers of media and artistic works, by and large, we're seeing finished stuff. So most people who think, you know, I might like to write, they've never, they've never seen a, a draft of something. They've never seen just, you know, what, you know, The Great Gatsby looked a month looked like a month in. Um, they've only read the finished product. And so I think the expectations as a result are tend to be kind of unreasonably high. I think another reason why that can happen, you know, if you're if you're like me and like so many people who, you know, who have a day job um, and do so many things that aren't, say, writing fiction or poetry or essays, um, just to make a living, that time seems so precious. Um, and I have more of it at this point in my life than I have uh, you know, in the past, but for someone who, who works nine to five and, you know, maybe has a couple of kids, um, that writing time is, is fleeting and extremely short. So I think there's people come to it with a huge amount of pressure. Like I need to make this work. It's the first time in three months I've been able to steal away to my desk or to my, to my laptop or, or to my office. And, and I need this to go well. And I totally get that. But it's kind of an unfair expectation to put onto yourself and, and I think um, can actually really hurt the process to, to bring all of that uh, intensity and pressure into it. So, um, but I totally get why everyone's like, I need to be great right now. Yeah, and then immediately the corollary is, if this is not great, then I should just give up. Right. Yeah, I'm not good. I'm fooling myself. All of those you know, self-doubting voices start to sneak in. So what do you think separates, I mean, obviously you went to Iowa, so you got to, you know, really immerse in the permission of the process and studying the process. But for people just starting out and, and for all the people you've interviewed, what do you think separates them from, from other people, you know, as we all know, Stephen King was like, as he talked about in On Writing, he was like working in that horrible laundry facility for... Yeah. I can never get that image out of my mind of him working in the laundry facility and finding that like rotting food in those tablecloths. Like he was doing that all day and then like went home to write Carrie. So what do you think from having interviewed him and and many other people separates them and allows them to keep going, even though they have the same doubts as everybody else who's writing? Yeah. Writing is so much about honestly, time, time management and being incredibly resourceful about finding ways to make time for writing. I think, you know, 90% of writing 
is really just finding ways to make the time. Um, and these people that I interview are incredibly stubborn about that. Um, Mark Haddon calls it a bloody mindedness, you know, which is sort of a great British coinage of his. Um, just this unbelievable stubbornness to, to find the time, um, to make it precious. And, you know, it's easier now, though still not easy, that, that they have, you know, publishers um, and agents who, you know, are expecting them to do new work and, you know, that they've made a certain amount of money through their publishing. But um, even still, you'd be surprised how hard it is, you know, how many engagements um, they have calling, whether it's teaching or speaking or whatever it else it is that they do. Um, but most of these writers have stories from way back when, before they'd published anything, before the word, the world had sort of, you know, um, tapped the sword to their forehead and said, you're a writer. Uh, they did not know that. And they had the same self-doubt that we all do. And what it came down to for most of these people was just finding a regular time to make time for it. You know, for Khaled Hosseini, it was went at his night graveyard night shifts when he was a security guard, for instance. Um, you know, he'd go there with his big book of, of Stephen King uh, novellas and and he would try to write. Um, you know, there's, there's so many stories like that of, of people just any way they can. And I think ultimately that's what separates the folks who end up really publishing from the ones who don't because uh, it's, it's sort of not enough to, to be talented, whatever that means, you know, to have a way with words or to have great ideas. Um, it really kind of all changes once you actually try to commit something to the page. And unless you're spending a real significant chunk of your life doing that, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to make anything of value. So I think that's the difference, you know, is, is really just a willingness to, to be as creative as possible to find time before the work can even, even, you know, even actually start. I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a book in this maybe of writers. Um, I know there's the, you know, the, the rituals book, the daily rituals or, uh -huh. <clears throat> but I think even more than that, I think there's like a writer's day job book. Yeah. Where everybody yeah. talks about, here's my day job and here is how, you know, I got it done. Because you're right. Like once someone is well known, once they've published a book, you just trade one problem for another. Like maybe mm -hmm. previously you were a security guard or whatever you were doing. And then suddenly you have an agent who wants you to do something else. And so, and then they want you to go and promote it and you got to go to these, all these things. It, it, there's always going to be something yeah. taking your time away. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So that's what I found is even if it's even if it's half an hour a day, or if you don't have time to write a novel, you know, try poetry or try 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 really short stories. Um, Nell Zink in the book talks about how she would write these stories that were really just one page, and she sort of limited herself to the single page as as a constraining factor. And that's something you can do maybe in maybe in in, in twenty minutes a day if that's all that you've got. Um, and I think that that's part of lowering your expectations <laughs> is actually so important because if you come to it thinking, well, I only have 20 minutes, what, what good can I do in that tiny amount of time before my kids wake up or before I have to get to the job, you know, then it's really hard. But it, if you'd be amazed at what you can do in, in 30 pure minutes of concentration a day, 
Um, so I think that's where the work starts. Speaking of where the work starts, I am interested in how sort of um, how you pitched the project to the Atlantic, how you got the project started, and then how you started reaching out to everybody and just the process of creating this series for you. Sure. Yeah. So it, it came about, uh, as most things do, I guess, in a, in a sort of backwards way. Um, I had been doing interviews, uh, you know, for a podcast like this one um, during my time at Iowa. Uh, when I should have been writing, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was interviewing writers who came to town because there were so many of them um, always coming into this great bookstore, Prairie Lights, and giving a reading, and then they'd sort of go to a party and then pack up and leave the next day. And it just sort of broke my heart that how ephemeral it was. Um, and I thought, you know, I want to do something where uh, these writers are, you know, are, are making a record of their time here and what they were thinking about at the time and the book that they just published. And so I started this podcast called The Lit Show that aired on the local college radio station there in Iowa City. And it was fun because we had a real studio and the writers would come by and, and we'd talk about their books. So that was kind of how I got into this in the first place. And at the same time, I was also starting around then to do some, you know, text Q&As um, for theatlantic.com. And through the process of doing that, I noticed this kind of strange thing, um, which is that I would come to these interviews with all these questions and all these excitement and all these ideas about the book. And it was very strange to talk about because though I think my ideas were good and interesting, the writers often, you know, they don't want to really talk about interpretation. They don't want to foreclose the possibilities. Um, that's what's so wonderful about, about, uh, literature is there's not just one interpretation and by really digging into that you're almost like you're almost ruining what's wonderful about the book mm. um, because you don't want to just hear the writer say oh this is what it means or this is this is what I thought I was doing um, as interesting as that is and I think they were kind of you know reluctant to really dig in at the same time you know as you know it's it's a really weird thing going on a book tour right because by, you know, it takes a year or two for a book to sort of be finished and then go through all of the processes that happen behind the scenes in the publishing world. And then actually, once they make it out to the public, it's kind of old news. And most writers are actually engaged in another project, deep into another project. By the time they actually go on, on tour, it's kind of like their old novel is a little bit like talking about a dead relative or something. So there's this kind of caginess that I noticed um, and a very well-meaning one, you know, but but a, a sort of sheepishness about about talking um, deeply about the material that I could tell, um, you know, the people seemed to love the show and they always said how much fun it was. I, I could just tell that the exercise of discussing the book so directly was just a little awkward. And what seemed to really work, and when I just noticed all this freedom and excitement and spontaneity come into the conversations was ironically when we stopped talking about their novel or their poetry collection or whatever it was and started talking more about when do you work? Like, when do you get up? Do you write late at night or early in the morning? These kinds of questions about process and craft that still were about writing, but just not specifically about like, what was this character's motivations 
or why did you use this this form of enjambment in this poetry collection? You know, it, it you know, what are the formal kind of uh, considerations that you were thinking about here? Yeah, it would just really open up. Um, I tended to leave those kinds of questions for the end of the conversation, and always wished that found myself wishing that I was able to spend much more time um, just asking about process and asking about what they were reading um, and asking about how these writers sort of made their creative lives. So with that in mind, I started thinking about, you know, what was something I could do that would have a formula but also wouldn't be formulaic? Um, some kind of generative question I could ask, you know, a million different writers that would stay interesting um, each time. And so I had a couple different ideas, actually. And the other ones, you know, it wasn't clear to me at the time that asking about a, a favorite passage from literature was by far the best idea. Um, but the others I don't even remember anymore. Oh, no, I was going to say, what were they? Yeah, I know. I don't, I really don't even, I mean, this was now five years ago. I don't even right. remember. Um, well, but, now so you're I, the cagey writer who's like, I don't know, it's old news, <laughs> exactly. I didn't think about let's, it. Let's forget about that, yeah. Um, so I pitched uh, maybe three or four different ideas to my editor at the time, Spencer Kornhaber, who's now a staff writer, um, mostly about music for The Atlantic. And and he he said, well, you know, let's let's try this one. Um, let's try this this idea, which I had called, you know, I pitched it as by heart was the name where, where you know, writers share uh, a line that they know from memory or, or something that just has had profound influence on them. Um, so we said, hey, let's just give it a try. So it was actually funny. I, I had to then approach a couple writers without actually having a series to oh. show them this unorthodox thing, you know, like, can we do an interview? Um based on this, where we don't actually talk about your work directly. Um, and for whatever reason, I reached out to the, to the short story writer, Jim Shepard, who I was interested at the time and in at the time and whose work I really like and um, who I've heard is a quite a fantastic teacher. So I thought he might be good. You and I just straight for Jim Shepard. That's pretty, that's impressive. You're like, I'm going <laughs> right there. Totally, totally. Well, I knew, you know, I knew it had to be somebody who was kind of a name, yeah. um, just to make the Atlantic happy. And, uh, yeah, I just, it was, I don't know why him specifically. Um, I just had a feeling he might be, be good at it. And, and I just kind of wrote him an email, you know, I don't know him, um, and said, Hey, here's this thing I'm thinking of doing. Are you interested? And he said, sure, absolutely. Like, let's either talk about this last line from Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, or so he had a passage. Yeah, which is amazing. And he also had a passage from Lolita. Um, and he wasn't sure which one he wanted to do. Oh, my God. That's uh, so good. You're like, can we do both? I know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we, we ended up talking. So I called him on the phone. It was December, I think, of 2012. And we just had this amazing conversation for, you know, maybe 30 or 40 minutes about this story. And it just blew me away. I mean, I knew right away. Maybe it was just him, you know, and his sort of magnetic uh, way of thinking, but I was like that, this was like, unlike any interview I've ever done. I mean, it was so, you know, it was like being, it was like attending a great seminar. Exactly. Um, and instead of that awkwardness of, of getting someone to sort of talk about their own work and which feels, can feel promotey or 
just strange. Uh, I felt like I was just getting this a sort of like unfiltered glimpse of this man's of this man's mind and way of thinking. That's amazing. So how did you? So then you have Jim Shepard, right? So you've got Jim Shepard. So you can be like, hey, I'm writing from the Atlantic, and I got Jim Shepard. And then it's just like, <laughs> did everybody just line up? Pretty quickly, yeah. I mean. It, it, there were there were so at the beginning I was doing it every single week, which probably um, actually there was good things and bad things about that. But once I had this first piece, then suddenly I had this beast to feed, and I was getting pretty good people from the beginning. It was a little weird to explain it to them, but at least I had that piece to show. Um, and then pretty early on, I think you know I could look back at the archive. I, you know I got uh, Sherman Alexi did it really early on. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert did both of those pieces are, are in the book and they're two of my favorites. Those were two really early ones that kind of became models for me in terms of what these pieces could accomplish. Mm. Um, so, so fairly quickly, I just, I w I was able to connect, um, mostly, you know, through some pretty cool, uh, book publicists who are willing to try something new and, 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 you know, pitch their writers on it and were able to get them excited um, so really, you know, grateful to them. It was, we were able to get some, you know, some household names in there. And I think that, you know, that really helped down the line. Definitely. I think part of the reason too, that I was able to get, um, you know, well-known people to do this is it's so much easier than writing an essay or something, but the <laughs> like one. And, um, and so but they just really, they have to have a conversation and then, they, you know, then they'll work on the transcript, but it's not the same as, as um, kind of coming up with everything on their own. There's so, as you know, there's so much discovery in a conversation that happens that's organic. And, and it's a lot harder, I think, to, to do that on the page. It just takes more time because um, it's just you. But with two different voices there, you know, you can kind of riff off each other and, and, and you know, cover a lot of ground in, in 30 or 40 or 60 minutes. So I think that's a nice part of it for them too. Yeah. And I think that I, what I have heard is that everyone is so grateful to have a conversation rather than having to like fill out a form in an email. Like, do you want to answer yes. these questions? Like exactly where they're just sitting there like, Oh God, I don't know. Yeah. It completely changes it. So as I have a unique, there's so many unique things I can ask you because of the circumstances you're in. I having not done the MFA myself, I did mm -hmm. an MA in psychology, so I was like, oh, another degree sounds delicious, oh, cool. but, you know, yeah. how many degrees can one get? Right. Um, <laughs> apparently a lot, based on some people's experience, but <laughs> I mean, how does this compare to the experience, like doing these interviews, how do you kind of fit that into the canon of having done sort of the classic MFA in Iowa? I, I like to tell myself sometimes that having these conversations is sort of like getting little mini masterclasses, but as someone who's actually done the degree, what do you think is both different and similar about the process yeah. of interviewing writers on your own? Right, right. They're, they're different. I mean, I think that I've learned at least as much uh, from these conversations as I did from my MFA, but I learned different things. I mean, you know, for... The MFA, I think, you know, you're in you're in contact with with incredible instructors, and you learn a lot from them, and they're great. I had amazing teachers at Iowa, um, Ethan Kanan and Marilyn Robinson. No big uh, deal. <laughs> no big deal. Both of whom are in the book, um, Light the Dark, and and really 
taught me a lot of what I know about about writing fiction. At the same time, though, they're just they're just two people, and and probably the most instructive thing for me about Iowa was because it's a funded program and you teach, you really get to live for a few few years like you've already made it. You know, you're essentially like a writer who has a few books out and has a pretty cushy uh, teaching job at a university, and you have time. Um, you've got hours and hours a week in which to work. And that's a very new experience, I think, for most of the students who enter the program. Uh, it was for me. And, and it's, it's a learning curve. I mean, I think a lot of the time I could have spent writing, I spent, for instance, um, you know, uh, running a podcast. And, right. and uh, I was in a, a band where we, we did live karaoke. So we had um, uh, students from the program, they would like pitch their song they wanted to do, We Are the Champions or whatever. And then we would have a big party where all the students would come and everybody would get up and do their song because all writers probably secretly want to be rock stars. So, yeah, you know, I Stephen was... King's band. Um, yeah, exactly. So were they good? Like how, I'm sorry, I can't, <laughs> I can't just let that one slip on by. Yeah, they really ranged, but some of them were, were truly, truly incredible. Um, I remember Eleanor Catton singing, uh, we are the champions, um, and just killing it. Uh, so many funny, funny memories or Benjamin Nugent, doing um psycho killer Ooh. um it was just it was a lot of fun but Were i mentioned any themes it, among yeah. the karaoke selections oh god we did it all nice. i mean we did we did like a bikini kill song Ooh. we did um uh you know a lot of like james brown and funk i mean we really ran the gamut which was which was really fun um we were called the dads because we had a definite dad rock vibe going on <laughs> <laughs> for better or for worse. And, um, you know, I mention it because these are the things you do when you suddenly have completely unstructured time. Um, a lot of people got really into softball. There's this big poets versus fiction writers softball game at the end of the year every year at Iowa, and it becomes like a full-time job for people. And that's all great. Like, that's wonderful. You, you need to live and experience things. But looking back, I'm like, oh, my God. I had so much time and, and, I, and I wish in some ways I'd, I'd used it better. But that was, that was the challenge. The other thing you get out of an MFA is, is you really get a network of people um, Ethan, to, to read. And Ethan Kanan, you know, who, who will always sort of say that he did spend most of his Iowa MFA playing softball, said that it does, will, will always tell you that it doesn't matter that he wasted his two years, basically, uh, and didn't write a word. Um, because what he came away was, with was a, you know, a community of close friends that he could you know, share his work with and read their work you know, the, and in relationships that will last a lifetime. Um, so I think that's what's really important about the MFA, really is, is, is the kind of learning to deal with your time for the first time in a way that you won't have ever uh, until you are able to make a living as a writer and, and that community that you come away with. With these conversations, I think the benefit of it is, first of all, hearing from so many different voices and hearing so many different perspectives. I mean, I, I only had, you know, you know, probably six or eight different professors in my whole MFA, um, which is, a, you know, some fantastic viewpoints, but also a limited number. Um, and with this book, you know, I've now done 150 of these interviews and just speaking to such a range of, of 
different writers with different approaches and different visions and different influences. Um, I've just, I've learned so much, not only about craft, but also I've, I've discovered, um, so many, so many works that have in turn influenced me, um, and, you know, gotten my mind, um, just excited, um, that I hadn't known before. So it's been great in that way. There's also something about these conversations where the writers, they, they kind of know they're just speaking about their own experience and they're a little bit more willing to, to give advice. Um, and I think sometimes in the, in the MFA context, writers are a little afraid of, teachers are being a little, a little afraid of being prescriptive in that way. I think because they have students who are really diverse and, and, and are doing different things. And, and so, you know, Ethan Kanan is one um, who's probably the best teacher of writing I've ever had, is, is one person who, who, who says, here are my rules. You know, here's how an ending works. Here's how point of view should operate what you should think about when you're trying to write from the point of view of a character. Um, you might disagree, that's fine, but I think these are the rules, so at least if you break them, break them knowingly. But that's actually really rare, I found, in, the, in, the, um, in my experience, you know, in the academic context. And I think there's something about these conversations, since the writers are really talking just from their own perspective, the thing that, that they've learned about their work instead of their ideas about yours, that they're really willing to say, well, here's how I think about endings because I have to write them, you know, or here's, here's how I struggled with this character and learned I'd gone about it completely the wrong way because it's, it's just specific to their experience. And it's harder to get teachers to do that, I think. So that's been one of the most valuable things for me um, in terms of this book, as well as uh, speaking beyond writing, just the strategies people have for trying to channel their creativity, which we all struggle with, right? And that's a big theme. You know, probably the biggest theme of this book is, is, is how do you get to that place, you know, with all the worries that we all have and all of the, the cares and busy schedules, how do you kind of get to that place where your best ideas happen, where, where magic happens? Um, and that's a little bit more awkward to kind of ask in, in, you know, your, your famous professor in a writing class, for whatever reason, the focus is always more on the students. Um, but I think that's, that's, you know, uh, been really valuable for me, um, with these conversations is, is, is hearing, first of all, that these people have these doubts and they have these struggles and then also learning about the strategies they've used over time to cope with it. I never thought about that, but yeah, it would have been difficult. I was in photography school mm -hmm. for a year and yeah, I probably, I mean, I got to know my professors as people, but I wouldn't have been like, Hey, what do you do when you freak out and you feel like the project might be terrible and you yeah, check the yeah. whole thing. Right. Um, it's a little easier to do that in an interview. Yep. Well, of course, very much making so. me want to check everything and go to Iowa, but, um, <laughs> but it was great. Oh, so great. Yeah. I have friends yeah. who've gone, it's just like, Ooh, it sounds like heaven. Yeah. So how, how have they, I mean, and you've done 150 interviews is amazing. How have, how have they impacted your own writing? Because I mean, you're doing the column and then you've, you've got the book coming out with this. And then are you working on your own fiction on the side still, or are you primarily focused on journalism? And I have, I have been. Yeah. I mean, I'm very focused on journalism. I, I kind of um, split my day working in the morning on a novel I've been that I started really my last year in Iowa after I'd graduated and thought it was a short story, um, but started working on as a novel in earnest um, in, in 2013. 
Uh, and I, I try to carve out three or four hours a day. Doesn't usually end up being that many, but that's what I shoot for. It usually ends up being more like two or three hours in the morning to work. Um, and, and then in the afternoon from noon to six, um, I work, uh, at a magazine called the new food economy, um, which is about the cultural and economic and political forces shaping the, you know, how and what we eat in the, here in the U S and, uh, you know, I'm an editor there and I do a lot of writing, um, for that magazine. And so that's, that, that takes up a full six hours or if not more. Um, so I, I do try to split it and, and, you know, one of the ways these conversations have influenced me is to make sacrifices. You know, um, I've seen the way other people have done that. Um, you know, financial sacrifices, uh, time sacrifices, social sacrifices to make sure that by and large, um, I'm able to, um, return to the experience of working on this novel, um, in those, in those morning hours. I, I think there's always a, a little bit of a tricky balance. Um, and again, this goes back to this book that maybe, maybe we should go edit on like, what do writers do as day jobs? How, the difference between having something that's related, like a writing related job, like you have versus having a day job that's completely separate. So your brain is able to focus on writing when you're coming to it. Like, how is it to just switch from novel to editing and journalism all day? Do you find that your brain is like, oh my God, so many words, or does it fuel you and make you feel more connected to writing to be doing that all the time? Yeah, I like it personally. Uh, they're very different. And I guess, um, you know, I've been a journalist. I've also been a teacher. Um, I've done different things over the years. And what I've found is that unless I'm really in the throes of completing a draft or completing a short story, um, when it can just be all consuming and I can write from dawn to dusk working on it, I can really only write fiction for three or four hours on a good day. Um, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred, sometimes two thousand words is, is about, about all I can do. Um, even when things are at their best. And so I like to have a different, um, job. It's one of the reasons I've tried to do the By Heart series and part of the the role that this book has fulfilled in my life is uh, I like to have something that's getting me out into the world and meeting people I wouldn't meet otherwise and talking to people that I wouldn't otherwise. And I find that those conversations are extremely sustaining in my, in my creative life um, because they get me out of my own head and they get me out of the things that I'm worrying about and, and fretting about and, and they force me to and the best possible way to engage with somebody else's experience and for a little while to try to imagine uh, my way into their lives. And that's especially interesting often talking about uh, with food people um, because, you know, most of us have so little interaction with the agricultural system. And so it's just so fascinating to talk to a farmer and learn a little tidbit like, you know, cows in the pasture uh, have one cow called a bell cow who they all follow when it's time to go over to the next stretch of land, they'll all kind of lead this, they'll all follow this one leader cow. Like just a little detail like that. I don't know, maybe I'll never use it in my fiction. I probably won't, but um, just getting to hear a detail like that just kind of, kind of gets you going. And these conversations have had that for me, have been that for me. I mean, yes, they're very much about the creative process. And there's been so many times where a conversation has almost spookily seemed to address 
um, the thing that I've been worried about or the thing I've been working on. Um, but just to hear another voice and to, and to get out of my own head is just, is just a gift. And I think I'll all, even if I were to, you know, make a ton of money as a writer one day, I think I'd always try to keep some, some kind of J job that would, that would keep me doing that. I think that's one of the best things about writing and, and sort of living as a writer is that everything becomes material. Yes. I'm like, oh, this annoying person in front of me at the grocery store who's, you know, doing something really irritating and taking an hour to get through the checkout. Like, that could be a character. That's a pretty good character. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. It's really It kind of swallows everything. Yeah. Writing can, can kind of subsume everything. Um, I know my friend Leslie Jamison, who's, who's in the book, um, when she was out at Iowa with us, um, she worked in the afternoons at, uh, at a bakery. Or I guess probably the early morning sometimes too, um, because you know baking schedules and and just to have something even if it's completely unrelated to what you do, you learn a specificity of language. You know, just taking the baking example, like just to just to know all those little details um, about you know how bread is made, or just to just to like intimately know the way that like a puff of flour looks in the light or whatever, like that's going to just stick with you forever. Um, and all those experiences are just, you know, become part of what you can do. They become part of what you know and understand and, and can explore. And so I just think, I think day jobs in a way are, are, are sometimes seriously undervalued as hard as they can be. And I, and they can be, they can be a strain. <laughs> um, but, you know, you see that a lot with these, with these writers. I mean, there was something about that nighttime, mysterious graveyard shift time in the Hosseini piece that he talks about that I think, you know, imprinted him. And he learned to sort of appreciate, almost by accident, that, that, that clearly has continued on into his writing life. And, and Leslie Jameson, I mean, her medical interview or the medical stuff. I mean, that was a piece. Absolutely. Great point. Loved, loved, loved. Yeah. This was, she starts her story, uh, her essay, the empathy exams with, um, yeah, this experience she had to make some spare cash in Iowa, uh, which was, uh, you know, the whole mini industry of medical pretending, um, which is that doctors in training don't operate on real patients because they don't know what they're necessarily doing yet they operate on people who are who have been given a script and are acting out the symptoms of appendicitis or whatever it might have and the diag and the doctor um has to diagnose them and this is a wonderful thing right that i'd never heard anything about it's just like what yeah what (laughs) i mean i have friends who are doctors they don't tell you this stuff i know which is so that's what we do or whatever i mean we all know about cadavers but we don't know about people pretending to be sick with a script. It's so yep. amazing. Yeah. And so that job that she did for money and, you know, and she's smart, you know, she, I think she knew there was, there was something writerly of interest there as so many of us do, right? Anytime we are, you know, deliberating whether or not, you know, to, to have an experience, there's always this voice in the back of the mind. that's like, okay, this is, this has that ineffable thing that I know might be material, but 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 she did it and and got paid and ultimately it became the the complete found you know sort of symbolic foundation of of the book that she wrote the empathy exams. Um, so it's so so cool to hear about those stories and and the way people almost by chance just stumble on things, um, not just with jobs but so much in this book. You see how by complete dumb luck or what seems to be luck. 
these writers stumble on these passages that transform them and ultimately shape them. And it seems like destiny when you hear the way, you know, Sherman Alexie talks about being in college and a teacher that he happened to have assigned him uh, poems by Adrian C. Lewis. And, you know, he, uh, Lewis is a Paiute Indian and, and is, is writing directly about Native experience. And the way Alexi talks about it, he's like, I just didn't know you could do that. Like, literature was white to me. Like, when I tried to write a story, I was writing in whiteface. And he, it just, it blew his mind apart. I mean, he just, he says, I think he says it's almost like the impact of a nuclear bomb is how he, how, is how he expresses the impact of encountering these poems simply because some blessed adjunct at Gonzaga College somewhere, I think that's where it was, um, has the sense and the knowledge and the devotion to, to know enough about poetry to, to be giving these students someone as amazing as, um, as Adrian C. Lewis. And, and it completely changed his life. So it's, it's one of the mysteries here in this book. I was like, is it luck, you know, when, when you stumble on the thing that gives you this sort of life-altering idea? Or is it not luck? I mean, is it, you have your eyes open, you're looking, um, you've got a particular set of interests and considerations, and you're going to find something, whether it happens now or in five years. And I don't actually know the answer to that, but it's certainly wonderful uh, reading the way these writers um, sometimes just seem to stumble into the sort of light bulb moments that ultimately define them. I think, I mean, I think like anything else, luck kind of favors the prepared. So yeah. if you are so. reading nothing, I mean, then you probably, you know, aren't wanting to be a writer. I mean, I don't know anybody who isn't like compulsively treating bookstores like an open air drug den like I do. Yeah. Yeah. As a writer. It's just like, <laughs> oh, I got to go. I got 300 at right. home. I got to read. But the, I don't know. There might be something in there. There might be. Yeah. You just yeah. can't resist. And I think right. I think that there are two sides to this in reading the book that are wonderful. One is, you know, getting to hear the inner workings of the minds of writers that you admire. But the other side of it is getting to hear the impact writing had on someone's life. And I think that maybe to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that when you're trying to sustain yourself and sit down and find the time, and, and there is always that question of like, what does this matter? What difference does it make? Yeah. That reading a whole book of like, look at what kind of a difference it made to these people. Like if Sherman Alexie had never read Adrian C. Lewis, he might have not even known he could write the way he ended up writing. Yeah. So I think the sort of call to action for anyone thinking of writing is to keep going because you don't know who is going to be impacted by what you ultimately create. Absolutely. It's so hard to quantify. I mean, I know a lot of writers struggle about this and they have this in the book. Um, there are moments when of self-doubt in here where, where you can tell even these successful writers are wondering, um, why, why, you know, it, it can feel self-indulgent, I think, especially when it's not going well. Um, but if you can look and we all feel about that, you know, like whether we're writers or not about the, about the, the things we devote our time to. Um, it's so easy for things not to feel quite impactful enough or quite altruistic enough or quite meaningful enough. Um, and writers are no different in that. But if you really look at like the impact that someone like Sherman Alexie has had, it must be incalculable. 
just just for him experience you know articulating so many so many things on the page that have that have never been um expressed before not only for the people alive now to read them but for all the people who have not yet been born um you know i know for me reading alexi in my sophomore english class was transformative there was something about the power of those stories in that book um uh, Lone Ranger and Tonto fist fight in heaven and the way storytelling is itself such an obsession within the stories that just like got me really excited about contemporary literature uh, and people writing now which I had never read you know I had read like Charles Dickens and you know stuff that I still like but it's just not addressing contemporary experience and if you even just convince you know a handful of people you know to not to not go into some soul-crushing uh, corporate career where they never really figure it out, but to take a risk and to and to follow that that inner voice that says you can you can you can be courageous and 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 try something different. Um, it's hard it's hard to really measure the impact of that. I mean, I, I I really believe that 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 literature can unlock something in in people um, that that ultimately gets them to ask serious questions that has the potential to, to, you know, really imp- improve their, their decision-making in their lives. I hope that's true anyway. I, I want to believe that. And I think I do. Well, I think you've, I think you've just, you know, created a book that proves that it does. And um, I, I want to thank you for taking all the time to do those interviews. So now that we can have them in this book and, and benefit from them. So, yeah, I'm so glad if, I'm so glad if you're enjoying them. Um, as a writer, it's really fun to share, especially in this, uh, you know, the Atlantic doesn't do a lot of series, so they don't, they don't have a, an easy way of browsing this whole archive. And plus this whole series is just a love song to print. Um, so there's something about reading it on the screen that just feels a little bit dissonant. So I'm so happy to finally have them in this, in this sort of beautifully bound thing you can hold in your hands and to share them, um, in this form. Well, thank you so much for, for, talking to me today and thank you caroline sharing a little bit fun. more um, of the process yeah really appreciate it it's been great thank you for listening to the secret library podcast the show is produced by me caroline donahue and frederick barry mcwilliams jr my tireless audio engineer to get show notes for this episode and all other episodes please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.